Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's reviews of Niasa Hardiman's Stranded at Sea horror film Sea Fever, which is currently streaming on Hulu. When a brilliant scientist student, Siobhan, embeds with a fishing vessel to study sea abnormalities, she gets more than what she bargained for when the ship becomes entangled by a strange parasitic creature. And to help keep today's review afloat is returning skipper of the show, Bernie. Did you bring your sea legs with you today? Uh, somewhat. I'm trying. I have those little flippers on, so we'll see how far we can get. Yeah, it took me a while to get them, but you'll get the hang of it. Uh, I'm glad that you picked Sea Fever. This was a movie that I came to earlier this year, and... It's one that largely, I think, kind of like went under the radar for a lot of people, notably so. Like it was a very limited release um, and it doesn't help that it kind of came out right in the height of the pandemic starting. Mm -hmm. It's kind of ironic that this film came out when it did in terms of kind of some of the subject matter that it deals with on top of obviously some body horror and some uh, creature feature sea stuff, which we'll get into more. But uh, what did you think overall? I'm really curious to hear what you thought. You know, this is my first time watching Sea Fever and- it's it's a very unique kind of a story. I think it's it's kind of a Moby Dick meets the aliens kind of a thing almost. I mean, it, it's it's a, a very unique take, something that I, I don't think I've seen too much in those kind of lost at sea kind of horrors. Uh, so I was I was mm-hmm. pleasantly surprised kind of how it unfolded and, and kind of ultimately how it ended up wrapping up for us. Yeah, I think the comparison that I make and I saw a lot of people make online was to like John Carpenter's The Thing, right? It's about a group of people that are trapped in one location, swap out to Antarctica for a boat in the middle of the ocean. That change in setting alone, obviously the film is much more, is a, has a lot of differences to The Thing, but I think on kind of just like a surface level examination, it has those kind of parallels. But just an idea of being in the middle of the ocean and especially the idea that nobody knows what part of the ocean you're in because as we learn, like the boat itself, which is a shipping vessel, um, moves off of ra- off of their uh, coordinates and whatnot. And they end up in kind of like the exclusion zone where nobody's supposed right. to be. And so this idea that you're stranded out in the middle of the ocean, and even if you need help, help doesn't know where to yeah. look for you. And as we know, the ocean's a big, vast place. So that kind of just heightens the tension for me overall. And I think that that is one of the keys in which helps this movie kind of craft its own identity, even though, like you said, it's similar to Alien in a way. I think it does just enough that, sure, you could make those comparisons, but at the end of the day, it doesn't feel like it's necessarily drawing 100% inspiration or trying to copy those films, um, which I think a lot of people tend to lob at indie horror movies. People have a tendency to be like, oh, that's similar to Alien. That's similar to The Thing. It's just trying to be that movie, which... I think you can attest is not the case with right, this. Right, yeah. I mean, it, it kind of carves out its own niche. I mean, again, like you said, there are um, certain kind of sprinkles of a lot of different types of horror movie classics that we've kind of all grown to love. But um, although I wouldn't say that this is necessarily uh, a cult classic by any means, I don't think it will necessarily be like that in the future. I think this has a very interesting story that, um, I don't think has been really told yet uh, in that kind of way, you know? That's very true. I think that it does a lot of things well, but again, it is one of those films where I just see it being love it or hate it because there are going to be like a general audience, I think, if they went into this, it would probably be, they would probably have similar complaints to a lot of 
like quote unquote classic movies where you see glimpses of the monster, but then there's more to it than that. Like it's not like earlier I described this as being part creature feature. And now that I think about it, that's not really true because there's not, it's not a great deal of focus placed on top of the creatures, right? right? It's more kind of about the crew members coming together and not only that, but it's kind of like what their lives were like before this event occurs. And then seeing how the event itself is obviously it's terrifying in a lot of different ways and it's grotesque, but it's more about seeing how characters are coming into their all and kind of evolving. But um, in focusing on characters, what did you think of Siobhan herself? Uh, what did you think of her arc? Because where she begins and where her character ends up are two very different places. She's a very... I, I guess kind of recluse person, right? She's, it doesn't seem like she's very socially aware. She's kind of socially anxious around people. Uh, Not a big fan of uh, cake as we see in the first two yeah, minutes of the movie. Which uh, that was one of the, the big takeaways of this movie for me at least. But, um, <laughs> but with her, I mean, you see there's a point in the movie, uh, you know, probably 20 or 30 minutes in where the crew is eating together and she walks down presumably to work and, and eat on her own. And there's a very big discrepancy, you know, it seems right off the bat between the crew and her, where she, she mm -hmm. kind of isolates herself. But again, as you said, the, as the movie progresses, she starts to, it seems like, get more confidence talking to these guys because she obviously is an expert that's able to help at least drive the, the narrative of the film. Um, so uh, they, the, they being the castmates as well as us actually have a better understanding of what the hell is going on with this creature. Right. Um, but she becomes a very strong character at the end. Um, and I think she, she makes decisions that otherwise I don't think most rational people wouldn't make those kind of decisions, but they're for the greater good. You even see that in the situations where she's forced to interact with other people she is super socially awkward and doesn't really realize what the way that some people can take what she's saying. Like when she goes down into the engine room and she meets Omid, Omid, who is one of the uh, maintenance guys on the boat, and he's revealing like this water filtration system, this elaborate system that he's created for the boat. And she realizes like, hey, this because she doesn't have a lot of like pretentiousness to her. But the way that she carries herself, she's very like standoffish as it is. And She's not willing to engage and get to know people, but she never really carries her intelligence in a way that, because she is obviously very intelligent because of the program she's in and the background she has. It's never, I'm smarter than these people or I'm looking down on these people. And yet that's how it comes across, right? When she meets Omid, who clearly has a vast intellect and he reveals later, he's like, oh, I've just been waiting for the right moment to get a good job or to get a different job, except she says that literally to him. She's like, why don't you have a better job? And she says that like in front of these other people that work on this boat and that's their livelihood and all these things. And yet her character doesn't carry it. Like she's trying to be insulting. Really? That's how socially awkward she is, is that she doesn't realize the way that her words carry weight based on kind of like her way of life is so different than the crew that it kind of comes off that way. But um, I mean, she's the perfect character for, this kind of fish out of water story in that a big role of the film is that sailor superstition versus kind of like fact, right? Cause she's the scientist and she's got this elaborate knowledge of science and of the sea and whatnot. And yet she's met with this way of life that 
completely contradicts her way of life and her thinking. Uh, no, hundred percent. I mean, you know, I think that it's, it's very interesting because the people that we, we tend to see that are strong characters at the beginning of the movie turn out not to be that way towards the end of it. Right. Um, so there's a bit of a 180 to that effect. And, you know, also to, to the director's credit, I love movies where you genuinely don't know where the, the, the storyline is going. Right. I mean, there's a point where they start talking about sea fever at the beginning and they, they make a mention to it. And I started kind of thinking about the last movie we talked about Pandorum. So maybe this is going to center around somehow they get stranded and, you know, they all start to go crazy and kind of turn on each other. Then there's a moment where they end up seeing a ship that's, uh, you know, right by them, but that looks basically deserted. And then I started getting kind of, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Ghost Ship. Yes. Not a, not the greatest movie, but the premise is... Great opening sequence and then a whole lot of uh, less than stellar yeah. <laughs> moments. Putting it nicely. But, you know, so I, st- I just, I was trying to figure out what in God's name was going on with this storyline, right? Is the ship going to sink? What? And again, I don't think we had really much of an idea of what the real issue in this film was, uh, probably with, until the last 30, 40 minutes, I mean, uh, to the second half of the show, or excuse me, the second half of the movie. So the way that the storyline kind of unfolded that, uh, that darker narrative that we didn't necessarily see as it comes to light. I think it makes the film that much more enjoyable, especially as the characters either falter or kind of step up to the plate. In that variation in terms of like the different directions that the story goes, again, it kind of comes back to the central theme of the movie for me, which was she's quite literally a fish out of water, right? She's all on the mainland. Her intellect gets her through the way of life that she knows. And then as a part of that education and she's facilitating her learning by being embedded on this shipping vessel or this fishing vessel rather. And she's there to report sea anomalies. And yet she's doing this because it's part of the field that she's an expert in. And yet she's embedded into a particular facet of that field of study that she has no idea how anything works like, and she is not anticipating that because obviously you wouldn't, if you're not part of that social group or that social context where, when she goes on to the uh, bridge of the boat, she takes off her hat and she realizes she's a redhead. Right away, that becomes an issue because redheads on boats, they have this superstition that it's bad luck. And we learned that the crew hasn't been catching a lot of fish lately. So they're very superstitious and on edge about that, like right from the jump. When we meet the captain and uh, the two captains and owners of the ship, Gerard and Freya, like they have a little prayer early on before they leave and they kiss a locket of a child that up until a certain point we assume is just back at the mainland, but then obviously we learn their fate. Um, And it's just interesting to see a character who in any other situation on the mainland would have a 100% idea kind of like how to tackle things. And yet she's presented in this environment that she has no idea and it kind of goes against everything that she's learned. And all the things that make her an expert. So I like that contrast of seeing a fisherman's way of life and a fisherman's uh, superstitions kind of like conflict with the science and the fact and whatnot. And it's just a interesting contrast that gives a lot of kind of texture to the relationships on the boat that otherwise it could have just been character A, character B, character C kind of thing. Whereas there's just more there's more to the characters because they conflict so much just on a 
a basic level. A hundred percent. I mean, again, I think there's no bigger contrast than Gerard, the, one of the captains of the, the ship and Shaban where, you know, it, it seems like, you know, throughout the film, he has somewhat of a distaste for her or a disdain for her. Right. Um, and towards the end of the movie, she's basically the most, she's the key to them surviving in some kind of circumstance. Right. So um, again, to, to that point, the, the contrast is incredibly uh, vivid and there for people to see um, but the leverage on how characters are evolving it, it just it turns completely by the end of that movie yeah and I think that that dedication to crafting these different characters and giving them at least enough of a backstory that they stand out from being kind of like stock characters right they're like I said it's not kind of like character stock one two and three and so I think that that focusing on characters and how they interact with one another and they, before they even take off, like there's conflict there, right? Because again, not only their way of life, but also the fact that like the superstition has them at odds with Siobhan. And so once we get to the part where they start actually kind of like encountering actual issues out on the water and they're actually in this like very claustrophobic setting, you're in a boat, you can't go anywhere. It kind of just, it keeps boiling up the tension in the atmosphere until it spills over, which is when the boat gets stopped mysteriously by these kind of like tentacles that come out from the depths of the ocean and grab the boat and keep it there. Um, what did you think of some of the, I, I hesitate to call them creature moments because there aren't really, it's not really how it's portrayed. Like there's no real monster that gets onto the boat in a traditional sense. Um, what did you think though of the way they incorporate kind of the isolation of the ocean, the claustrophobia of the boat, and then this parasitic threat that enraptures the boat when they there's an initial moment where they're looking at uh some kind of a, a sonar or radar um right the the captains uh, gerard and freya and it looks like they hit almost like a sea bank or a seabed uh, but when you get a, a look from shaban as she's looking down into the ocean it doesn't look like there's any kind of a change in the water so um you know i, I feel like you'd be able to kind of see it at that level right um so then the intrigue kind of goes to is you know since they're in that exclusion zone area was this something paranormal is this actually happening is this sea fever of some sort setting in through one character and we're watching it through that lens. Um, as we started to learn, you know, they go down into the bottom of the ship and um, they start to see the wood is turning uh, texture almost, right? Um, then that's where I started thinking that, again, uh, it was something more of a creature than it was paranormal or anything like that. Just uh, something, you know, different in its entirety from what we know of. Um, but as soon as she jumps into the water and she starts to see those, you know, tentacle-like things uh, kind of hanging off the boat, um, then I was starting to, again, kind of look, you know, my mindset was more of one of these like Moby Dick kind of uh, movies where this monster is going to take the ship down and it's going to be a survival movie. Um, so again, it, you know, it, it gives off enough tension where you understand, obviously there's a, there's a very big issue that the, the crew has to take care of, but I still at that point didn't exactly know where this movie was going to go. Yeah. I think something I really appreciated on a rewatch was the ambiguity of what the actual creature is. Because 
there's that simple explanation that Jared gives where he's like, oh, it's a squid. And then Siobhan goes, oh, well, no, it's much bigger than any squid that's ever been reported. And he's like, oh, it's a rare squid. So there's this kind of doubt and there's no clear answer whether this is a species of something that just hasn't been discovered yet because of kind of the area of the ocean they're in or the depth that the creature was residing in and they kind of like woke it up a little bit by kicking up the wake or whatnot? Or is this some type of cosmic parasite that's come from the bowels of the ocean? And I appreciate the fact that it's never explained because again, it makes it more terrifying. I think if we got a definitive answer, it would affect it to a certain degree. Like it doesn't, it's not going to affect the purpose that it serves in the film and how it affects the movie. But I think that explaining it and I this is kind of like my one of my uh, hills that I'm always willing to die on with horror movies is that if you explain something outright it's ultimately for me it's less scary because I have a definitive answer for something whereas if my mind is trying to decide whether it's this or that explanation it kind of just leaves it open to more interpretation and then my brain kind of like starts formulating even worse ideas of what it could be and things like that so that sort of confusion or a lack of clear-cut answers for me i think really works in a movie like this that goes in so many different directions like well, you so the said. other thing was there was a, a moment and i had to rewind it because i wasn't sure exactly what we were seeing so in the the reason apparently or one of the reasons why boats can't go into the so-called exclusion zone is apparently that's where um whales and sperm whales and things of that nature mate and have children um, right. So there's a, there's a scene where after that, you know, squid like creature is, has kind of gotten hold of the ship. Um, there's a moment where the camera goes into the water and you start to see different, what I thought it was with sharks at first, but on the second watching it was whales. Um, and again, it kind of made more sense reinforcing what the exclusion was about, a zone was about. Um, so that being said, sperm whales are the only like actual predator to giant squid. So it would make sense that then that was a form of a giant squid, right? That maybe we just don't know of yet. Um, but there's also the, I, I don't want to butcher the name, uh, Niam Sar, the, the, the name of the ship which in essence is about uh, some sort of Nordic goddess, right? Um, I don't know enough about Nordic history, unfortunately, to be able to, to talk about you were You were the wrong guest for this film. I've been duped. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure there, there's got to be some kind of a, uh, a connection between that. Um, but it's it's ironic that the story that uh, Freya tells Shoban about um, the photoplan or uh, phytoplankton, excuse me, lighting up is that it's the hair of a goddess, um, and the actual story apparently of again I don't want to butcher that name, but yep, the, the Nordic, Nordic goddess. goddess that the ship is named after is about a woman that's has um, you know golden hair basically. Um, so there is some kind of a tie in between Shoban that Nordic goddess and then this creature and kind of the situation that's going on. In yeah, so I really enjoy that aspect overall of the film. And I think that it's something that a lot of people could overlook. And yet it's one of those things that kind of gives this movie its own unique flavor or texture rather in that it is very much wrapped up in 
sailor superstition in a way that is, I would say they're two completely different films. I'm not trying to compare the films, but like this and The Lighthouse, Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. Both of those movies are based around uh, maritime folklore in a certain way. And even though you might not recognize the certain things that they're referencing in the movies, ultimately it's all wrapped up into the events that are happening, both in subtly and not so subtle ways. Um, and I think that that's one of those little things that kind of just, it makes a film's world so much richer and it makes it feel, it's one of those things that it's what separates this from, let's say, I don't a low budget at sea horror movie or something like that. It's, it's small little narrative details that make the world feel like it's organic to the characters themselves. It's not just a group of fishermen on a boat. It's like these people take this, their livelihood and their culture so seriously that it defines them and the world that's presented by the director, like the world reeks of that. And it's, it just, it applies a level of authenticity to something that ultimately a it'd be very easy for a director not to do those things. And the fact that the director takes the time to do that, I think it just complements the overall atmosphere and everything that unfolds within the film. This is a small little line and it, I don't think it made too much of an impact on the movie as a whole, but it just, to your point of like the, the authenticity of, of the narrative structure was, um, I think it was Gerard uh, and Shaban were talking with Freya and uh, one of either Freya or Gerard mentioned that fishermen don't know how to swim because we want to make drowning long. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but that just that that stuck with me for that movie. It didn't have anything again to do with necessarily the outcome of the movie, but just on the authenticity front of like these guys are fish. This is their job. This is their livelihood, like you said, and and they have a, a genuine perspective. It seems like that's very much in contrast with what Shaban is like. Uh, again towards the end of the movie again that's it's ironic how that ends up changing as well uh but again yeah. again just to reinforce your point the the director really does a good job of those small little nuances and, and tidbits here and there just to kind of beef up the authenticity of the movie as a whole yeah and to piggyback off that i mean that's another thing that puts uh siobhan at odds with the rest of the crew right what is she do? what's one of the first things she does when she gets there she goes for a dive into the water and the rest of the people on the boat can't swim, apparently. So it is one of those things that, again, it seems very inconsequential. But when through discussing this and kind of thinking about the film as a whole, all of these little parts that seem innocuous really complement one another. And again, like I said, it makes for just a richer film and a more like the word that we both used, authentic world, in a way that would be very easy not to do. And yet taking the extra effort and the extra time to develop it with that in mind, I think really does a lot to complement all of those little pieces. But uh, let's get into some of the scares or gory moments, if you will. But th I was so pleased to find out that this movie dabbles in body horror, which is one of my favorite kind of subgenres of horror. I don't know what that says about me, but how well do you think that that worked within the context of the entire film? Um, I mean, so again, I don't think we had any clue of what exactly was going on up until that moment with Johnny when his eyes blow out, right? Um, which, phenomenal job in terms of like a scare, but holy shit, I was not prepared for that just on the movie front. Um, I was definitely rubbing my eyes throughout the rest of that movie. 
But, you know, again, to to go back just before that, uh, Shaban, Gerard, and I believe it was – was it Johnny or Omid that went on to the, the ship? I think it was Johnny then. Uh, yeah, it was Johnny. They, they go on to this seemingly, you know, uh, not – Derelict, derelict vessel. vessel, thank you. Um, and they go down into uh, you know the the lower level area, and they find what seems to be the the remnants of the crew there. And people have their eyes what we thought was gouged out. I mean, they're you know they're just whole different ways of dead, right? Um, so that's where in in that level of storyline, I thought this was again going towards crew members attack one another one of them went crazy when we get that introduction of this is through that squid right um in some kind of way it secretes um some kind of goo that has those parasites that ultimately you know end up killing you in one way or another um it produced a different level i felt of horror because you start to think back about how many times people were touching the wood um, and there's like goo on their shoe that's being left all around the ship. Uh, you know, how you're touching things on a ladder. So, you know, just my hypochondriac self, I, you know, <laughs> evaluated every possible way that they could have gotten infected. Um, so again, it just, the, there isn't much of a, I think, you know, musical score in this that helps to, to heighten those, those darker scenes it really is more of the realization as as viewers and as the crew members understand that they're not just in a problem now where the ship is in trouble but their physical lives are in danger and especially after that johnny situation they're all pretty it's interesting you mentioned like your hypochondriac kind of sensibilities kicking in with this movie because i found that i was contact tracing for them because like you said if i saw one of them touch the goo like when they first see one of the tentacles that starts, it's not really eating, it's more disintegrating through the hull of the boat. And Siobhan like sticks her fingers in there and starts like looking at the goo and rubbing it on her hands. And then I'm like, oh shit. Like think about all the different things that she touched from getting from the point of uh, contamination or contact to like a sink or something like that. And just thinking about all of the different things in between that she touched was like driving me insane because of course, you don't realize at first, like, what is happening, but then you start to piece it together, like, oh, there are these, I would, I don't know how to, just, I guess I would say that they're like razor sharp organisms that will get into your, they'll either get through your skin or they'll get through your eyes. And then they kind of, uh, what was the word? They incubate inside of you and they can incubate up to 36 hours, but then one way or another, they're coming out. And the way that they choose to come out a, a majority of the time is that, they blow out your eyes and then your eyes explode and you bleed to death. Um, or in Sudi's case, he's taken, and Sudi's death is one of the, it's not necessarily his death scene. It's more about what leads to his death where he gets into the, they realize that these organisms have gotten to the water supply and then he gets into the shower and he's like sticking his face up and the faucet is dripping all the waters running all over his face. And then they finally get the door open and he's covered in a thousand and one cuts and they won't stop bleeding. And he ends up bleeding to death. Like just little moments like that are such nauseating, like moments of body horror. This idea that the next time I took a shower, I was just like, oh shit. Like if that happened, if it was happening to me and it never would, but if it had just happened to me, 
I'd already be dead because there's nothing you can do about it. And you're basically, you're walking around on borrowed time at that point. And that's one of those things that I think is really at the core of what scares me the most about body horror. It's not just that his eyes got blown out or that he got these cuts that he bled to death. It's the idea that once you get essentially infected, it's a wrap. There's nothing you can do about it. Like, what? It, how are we going to, there might be thousands, there might be billions of those microscopic razor sharp organisms inside of you. And it's just a wrap. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, I think, again, the I think the reason we both love horror movies and the people that listen to this love it is because you'll put yourself into those movies and try and figure out how you'd react to it. Whether it's, again, mm-hmm. you know, you're watching Alien and a face sucker just hits you and you're waking up realizing, okay, I got, you know, seven minutes until that thing pops out. <laughs> um, or you're in this and you're trying to figure out when Shabbat is under you know uh underwater and she's trying to get those tentacle things off the ship what the hell would you think if you're doing that and then you're starting to realize that this is a a creature of some sort and there's tentacles that are coming towards you as well i mean i i had a minor panic attack just on that thought alone in the movie that's one of those scenes that bugged me out and i mean we talked about this when we did 47 meters down we have a shared fear of kind of the blackness of the ocean right this idea that you can only see a certain distance and then it's just black and it's unknown. And either a shark, it could be a school of fish swim at you, it could be a shark, it could be a tentacle Cthulhu monster for all you know. These types of things where chances are whatever it's holding back is something that you've seen before. But there's that there's that like lingering thought in the back of your head where you're like, literally anything could come out of that darkness. And for me, that scares the fuck out of me. But um yeah, exactly. Um, but after those two characters' death, Johnny and Sudi, the film shifts in a lot of ways. It moves away from focusing on the creature and the organisms in a sense. Like, we don't get many of those body horror moments. That's probably one of my few complaints about the film is that I wish we'd had more instances like that. Or we had had more creative moments that didn't necessarily kill a character. Maybe it just maims them and we get some other horrifying moment. But um I really like that the film shifts to more about focusing on quarantining and kind of like paranoia and fear, which, I mean, it's ironic that you picked this movie since we've been in quarantine now for almost six months. Um, But in the end, like the real killer is isolation and paranoia and fear. What did you think of kind of the role of responsibility that plays into this for each of the characters? I mean, I think each of them has their own way of handling the stresses that are involved, right? Um, Kira, for instance, is fresh off of seeing her son die and she's paranoid that maybe Shaban had a, a hand in it or... It's that redhead, man. Can't trust I mean, him. I did, don't disagree with you on that. But, uh, you know, you're in that kind of a state of shock. For her case, her son's dead and you're stranded in the middle of the ocean, it seems like. Who knows how you're going to react? Obviously, she didn't have the most productive way of reacting. Um, but at that point, too, with Gerard and Freya, you obviously see that they have an immense love for each other. But they've also, unfortunately, been through a lot. Um, so it was it was satisfying for me in terms of their character arc that Freya essentially killed Gerard. Um, I think that's how it was, right? Or maybe he... I mean, either she killed him or he killed himself. It was ambiguous to that effect, but they were together when he right. got... They were together, yeah. right. Um, so that's at least nice, but, you know, it, it's a, a, 
I guess, a pleasant way of dying in, in these kind of movies uh, for those guys. But um, better than getting your eyes blown. Yeah, up. definitely a lot higher on the list than that. Um, but there was uh, there's still a lot to be desired left to, to be desired, in my opinion, because when you have those last five characters, uh, yeah, five, six characters, um, you again, you start to see, as you say, the people that are kind of going a little bit crazier in quarantine versus Japan and Omid, uh, who are relatively cognizant and, and trying to be productive in the, the actions that they're doing. Um, so again, you start to see that kind of hedging of, of the, the two teams there, but um, it, it doesn't work out, I think, to, to anyone's benefit at the end. Yeah, I mean, it's really great that we get this final concluding moment that shows how much Siobhan has grown. I mean, to bring it full circle, seeing her character arc and seeing where she began to where she's at now, where when she got on the boat, she was still very timid. She was very much her own self. And Ger uh, Gerard and everybody else on the boat is almost in a place of like, not dominance, but they're the ones that are familiar with everything, how to do everything, right? They're comfortable with this way of life. They've lived it day in and day out for who knows how many years. And yet by the end of the movie, they're the ones that don't know what to do. And they're the ones that are the most overtly fearful and the ones that are willing to risk it all just so they themselves and the people in their uh, work family, as it were, get to safety. And yet Siobhan is the one that's willing to make the sacrifice and the hard decisions that nobody else wants to. And I mean, if you think about it from the beginning of the movie, while she might have still had that same scientist mentality about quarantining, this idea that you have to quarantine, otherwise we're all screwed. I don't know if she necessarily would have been able to make that hard decision had she not endured what she endures throughout the entire course of the movie. Say That's one of those things that I think really complements her growth. And it's not that, I mean, how many times have we seen the character in the beginning who's like a little mouse and then in the end, the movie, they're the ones that are killing everybody and saving the day. It's, it's not her save. She is saving the day, but it's more about her character accepting that she has to make a sacrifice, like the ultimate sacrifice. It's not that she's just this ultimate warrior, kind of generic ultimate warrior that's able to kill the the alien or the beast or whatever. It's more about her stepping up and taking responsibility, and yet the entire kind of journey she's been on is what enables her to be able to for lack of a better word, like mature to that. Right. Point. And I think the, the theme of this movie is kind of selflessness versus selfishness. The reason that the boat and the crew is in that situation is because Gerard chose to go through the exclusion zone from, from my recollection in order for them to maximize the catch that they had made. Uh, so they could make some extra money. Right. Um, at the end when it's just Omid, Freya and Shaban, uh, Freya goes off on her own and says, we'll, we'll split up and one of us will make it. And it's like, you're just being self selfish at that point. You, you like, she might be sick. Technically we don't know. Um, but she kind of goes off on her own and we don't know. Yeah. Freya. And we don't necessarily know how, how she ends up. Um, then again, Shaban and Omid, Shaban jumps into the water to save Omid. Right. Uh, brings him back up because he can't swim, make sure he's in there. And then when she realizes that she's infected, like you said, she makes the ultimate sacrifice and, and kills herself in essence. Right. Um, and at, at the very end of the movie, you see a ship apparently kind of on the horizon that 
hopefully ends up saving Amid. And again, we don't know the the ending of Freya's kind of journey, but that it, I think is kind of the the end result of of people that are selfish versus selfless and that people that are selfless hopefully you know something positive will end up happening which you know conversely if you're selfish there's a lot less chances of that happening in these kind of situations yeah and i think the ambiguity of the ending really resonates just because we assume that freya and omid are both being saved we don't know for certain that either of them are not infected right that's left up that's ambiguous we don't know and freya might die at sea maybe she's about to get picked up by that boat as well and it kind of i mean it resonates more with me because the film came out during covid and this idea that like the efforts of the few or i don't know if it's you can justify the amount of people that are doing what they're supposed to be doing and then the people that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing how if you're going to take advantage of the fact that some people are taking responsibility and doing what they have to do and yet there's still people that are out fucking about and making it worse, then you're kind of not taking responsibility in the long run. You're fucking over all those people that have been doing what they're supposed to be doing. Likewise, uh, Siobhan is making the ultimate sacrifice to save Omid. And yet Freya is the one that kind of is being reckless and not taking responsibility. And so even though if Siobhan is doing the right thing to try to stop the spread of the infection and she's doing the ultimate quarantine, I suppose, um, Freya though, if she's infected and let's say she doesn't get picked up by that boat or she does and she infects somebody else, then Siobhan's sacrifice was all for naught. I mean, <laughs> I love how you said that, uh, that Siobhan made, it was made the ultimate quarantine. One way of putting <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, a never ending one. At least. I, I will say again, I really enjoy this movie. I think that the ambiguity is good, but I, at least personally speaking, I would have rather there be a more definitive, you know, outcome in that, you know, we know that Freya died or we know that, uh, excuse me, Omid got picked up and maybe at the end we see, you know, one of those um, pathogens in his eyes or something like that as the credits roll. And I mean, we've had movies like that before, I guess. So that's not necessarily unique ending. Um, but, you know, depending on how they want to go, if there is a sea fever, you know, sequel to this or anything like that, um, I think they could have either wrapped this up a little bit better, um, or actually more definitive, uh, or they could have done more to leave it open for that kind of next round of, of movies. So you want sea fever two, seasickness or something? Uh, like that? by the way, I would pay money for that right there. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that. That's a free idea, right there. I, I think that there's there's enough of a story arc here to to warrant one, as long as it was done in a, uh, you know, and I think in an acceptable way. I don't think it necessarily has to be on the sea, but if this somehow gets ashore, then how again they go about quarantining people, and if Shaban makes a you know an appearance or something like that. But um, on a serious note, I mean, again, I think that the the if this is a standalone movie, I think the director did a really good job. Um, and again, there's enough ambiguity for us to fill in the blanks at the end. Um, but just because I'm, you know, I'm a selfish person, I guess, not selfless. I would have rather had more of a definitive answer towards that. Well, you want the virus to go uh, on land. So it sounds like you want, I don't know, like 28 tentacles later or I something. I mean, it'd be a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> 
So I think we differ a little a little bit there. I like that this is a one and done. We don't get a definitive ending in terms of Omid and Freya's story, but we do get a definitive ending with Siobhan's story because there's no way she's going all the way down there and she's not going to drown and die. But it is a bittersweet send-off, but I think it works really well for her character in that it's a bleak death because she's dying, obviously, and she's drowning, which is probably the most painful way to die. Um, but this idea that her entire life was dedicated, entire life, she's probably like in her 20s, but her life was dedicated to science and the sea and uncovering the unknown. And in dying like the way that she does, she gets to see and make a discovery that nobody else has. And it's kind of, it's it's again, it's a bleak death and it's unfortunate, but at the same time, it's bittersweet because she is the one that is dying not only the way she wants to, she's not getting her eyes blown out, which actually is probably more painful than drowning, I would assume. But the idea again that, not to compare death too much, but this idea that again, her life is dedicated to this thing. And while this thing is killing her, that she's dedicated her life to, it is somewhat fitting in terms of just her character arc being full circle. 100%. And what you just said at the ending there can be applied in theory to the next movie that we're going to be talking about. Um, so, so sit on that for Europa Report. Uh, okay. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, I will say the la last thing about Sea Fever is that, again, the I think uh, a lot of movies like this that are underrated or go under the radar have relatively really good performances from the actors i really like these actors there wasn't a feeling at all ever where this was some kind of you know a b-level movie in that that regard i thought each of them kind of i guess for lack of a better word they brought the kind of pizzazz that i'm looking for in this kind of movie um but so just i think that helped move around move forward the the narrative in a, a good and kind of wholesome way yeah, and I mean, especially Siobhan, who's played by Hermione uh, Corfield. Um, she did a fantastic job. And especially for her character being such a loner and such, not a recluse, but just being a loner and not engaging with a lot of people. I feel like you learn a lot about her character just from the things that she does. And then the more that she comes into being more of an open person that forms a relationship with these people, because I think one of my favorite shots in the movie is when she finally joins them for dinner. Of course it ends with Johnny getting his eyes blown out, but it's the first time that she's kind of assimilating into a group of people. And even when she's not talking to them, she kind of like does a quick glance at everybody and then smiles. And it's one of the rare instances probably in her entire life where she's found a sense of family of some sort with more than her biological family. And it's just such a sweet moment that in when I'm thinking about her death, again, she was able to achieve something not only in terms of just like saving other people, but she was able to find some semblance of a happiness that largely was not a part of her life. I, I couldn't agree with that more, man. Um, you know, again, the the way that she plays that character and the 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 emotional kind of roller coaster she has to go through to develop into that, you know, kind of calm yet, you know, good demeanored kind of character at the end. Um, Again, it just speaks volumes for, for how Hermione was able to kind of portray it in that way. Absolutely. Were there uh, any other scenes that we kind of passed over that stood out to you? No, no, not really. The only other thing I kind of would have thought of is um, 
would you jump into the water if you saw uh, like a squid or something like that or, or sperm whales or orcas or anything like that in the water? Fuck no. Those, di- those, those fishermen better learn how to swim because my ass is not going down there. I love how when she goes, this genius fisherman captain, he's like, yeah, jump in the water. And he gives her like a steak knife or a shucking knife. And he's like, you can cut all the, you can cut all the tentacles of the barnacles off of there. And I was just like, okay, if the boat's not moving, it's going to take her like hours to do that. <laughs> Fuck no. I would never jump in the ocean like that, especially if I'm by myself. Would you? Um, I mean, if I knew that there was an animal making the ship not move, absolutely not. No, I'd rather. That's, that's, a, that's a big no but for me, dog. I would say this. Uh, I would, you know, quick flex here. I have swam with nurse sharks when I was like eight or nine years old um, off the coast of, off the coast of Florida. But um, yeah, real quick flex. Uh, didn't get COVID that time either, thankfully. Um, and the, the most important thing that I learned from that was that uh, I have no interest in being in the water around animals that I think can kill me. So no matter how friendly a whale is or a squid is or anything like that, I have no interest in, you know, oh my God, there's a, a, a funny little fat meal for me. Like, I don't want to be in that. So no, I'm, I'm right with you on that. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, I'm glad to hear that neither one of us will ever be shark food or seal food or not- whale food. Knock on wood for that. Um, but I appreciate having the opportunity to chat about Sea Fever. Again, like I said, it's a movie that I think is very easy for a lot of like general audiences to kind of dismiss because people throw out that comparison to movies such as Alien or The Thing. And I think on like, again, a surface level kind of examination, it's easy to make those comparisons. And I mean, even, even myself, I would make some of those comparisons to key moments. But the film itself does such a good job of defining its own again we talked a lot about authenticity i think it does enough of that and there are enough supporting performances that it really comes into its own really quite unique uh little horror uh, horror film this movie just it has a lot of different homages i think to to various horror classics um but it steers enough in its own kind of lane where i think it carves out a niche in that kind of open water you know, shipwreck kind of a movie. Um, so to that effect, again, I think the director, you know, did a, did a really good job of separating it enough where it's its own, you know, kind of subgenre of horror, but it, it's mere enough where it doesn't seem too outlandish that that couldn't happen. Yeah, so Hardiman did a great job of grounding a story in enough realism that, again, it's presented as being, there's a creature, And yet the ambiguity, again, kind of lends itself to this idea that, hey, if you remove the creature and you're in that situation, a lot of what happens in the movie would happen to them in real life. Like, take out the eyes exploding and bleeding to death. The idea that the paranoia and the uh, fear wouldn't fill them in that, let's say they can't all fit on the lifeboats or they don't have enough food or one person reveals something about another person, which we see, like uh, Gerard has to admit that, hey... I sent us somewhere we're not supposed to be. That could maybe happen in real life. And that causes a fight that causes somebody to get hurt or to get killed. Like a lot of that legwork that we talked about allows this movie to carry itself in a way that half of the movie, three fourths of the movie could be viewed as a straight kind of isolation drama. And yeah, I love the horror elements obviously, but it's just complementing an already solid film, I think. So I appreciate having the, 
you on as always and uh, getting to chat about a movie that I think a lot more people need to watch. And uh, Sea Fever's streaming on Hulu currently for anybody that needs to check that out still. So thanks, man. Appreciate it, buddy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.